once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Morning. Glad y'all are with us today. You know, if you're a, a mom or a dad... As long as your child is two years of age or older, then you are very familiar with three things, I know. And those three things are excuse-making, lying, and living in denial. Isn't that right? Uh, Kids get to be experts at this kind of thing. My younger daughter is now working uh, some as a nanny, and she posted recently a little short little video of one of the little girls that she is uh, helping to take care of. The video is obviously shot at night. It's looking down a dark hallway, and peering around the corner of the hallway, around a corner in the hallway, is this little girl. And then you hear my daughter's voice saying, Susan, now Susan isn't her real name, but we're changing the name to protect the guilty, okay? So you see little Susan peering around the corner. My daughter says, Susan, you know you're supposed to be in bed right now. Are you in bed right now? And Susan looks around the corner and smiles and says, yes, I am. (laughs) Lying, excuse-making, living in denial. You know, we really all do it, don't we? Just the other day, my older daughter was talking with me about my need to eat in a more healthy manner, which is a topic I have no interest in whatsoever. And she was trying to talk with me for my own good. And you know what I heard coming out of my mouth? Excuses so that I could live in denial. We all do it, don't we? Why is it that when we are confronted with our shortcomings and our sins, we so easily and quickly go to one of those three strategies? Well, I think one reason can be pride. We just don't want to deal with the fact that we've fallen short. Another issue can be we just don't think it's a very big deal. And I think a third issue, though, is this. Once we're led to see the real consequences of what we're doing, of the wrongdoing, we sort of know intuitively there needs to be some kind of atonement for this, and we just can't pay it, or we don't want to pay it. What do we do with the guilt that really is there in our lives? Let me tell you the story of someone who came face-to-face with his needs, a band by the name of Anwar Congo. If you were to see a video of Anwar Congo or meet him, you might think he's a pretty friendly guy. He wears white suits. He smiles easily. He's often sort of covered and surrounded by laughing children. He does drink and smoke a little bit too much, but otherwise he seems like a kind and friendly grandfather kind of figure. But here's the difference. In 1965 and 1966, Anwar Congo was appointed by the Indonesian government to carry out the murder of half a million people, political dissidents. He was one of the masterminds of one of the most horrific mass murders in the 20th century. He personally strangled with a, with a wire over a thousand people. In 2012, he allowed a film crew to follow him and some of the people that he worked with at that time to make a documentary movie called The Art of Killing. And in that documentary, they go back to the places, many of the places where he killed these people. And he not only describes it, he reenacts it. And what is perhaps most chilling is that he and his cohorts will laugh about these things and joke about what they did, at times even holding children on their lap as they describe the torture of these people. 
And this man seemed to have no remorse, no sadness, no sense of a need for forgiveness. That is until the end of the movie. And at the end of the movie, for some reason, his, he reenacts one of these episodes. Instead of playing the part of the murderer, he decides to play the part of the victim. And he puts his own head inside the noose of that wire with which he killed so many people. And suddenly, he breaks down. And he begins to weep and weep and weep. This man who seems so cold and unremorseful cries out and he says, I wish the memories would go away. I think I've sinned. I think I've done something terribly wrong and I do not know what to do. And that's when the credits begin to roll. And this man who had seemed like such an unfeeling monster becomes a very real man struggling with a very real guilt and he doesn't know what to do about it. Is, it is as if he screams out from his heart, who can deliver me? Who can make me whole again? You and I perhaps aren't guilty of anything of that nature. I would be shocked if anyone here were. But isn't it true that every one of us in this room have purposefully committed sins, that we knew it was wrong when we did it? We have hurt friends and just carried on. We have said words to our spouses, to our parents, to our children, and the moment those words come out of our mouth, we know that those words will be hurtful. We have given our bodies to people in ways that we wish we could take it back, and if not our bodies, our minds and our hearts and our emotions. Every one of us in this room have done these kinds of things, and the deal is this, those things were not an accident. At the time, they were willful decisions that we made. It's as if our actions and our hearts were held in the grip of something that was evil and wrong, but we just couldn't break free from it. And we have this nagging sense that there's something not only this wrong in our relationships with each other, there's something that's wrong with our relationship with God. That's the story of every single person. Our sermon today is about this. We want to see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what Jesus has done about our guilt so that we can experience this, a new freedom to stop hiding behind the lies and the excuse making, a new freedom to stop living in denial and experience the freedom of Jesus Christ because God has made an atonement that's more than adequate for my sins and yours. Today's the, the second week of a four-week series in a series called Jesus Outside the Box. And the idea is this, the Jesus of the Bible is worthy of your worship and of my worship, but the Jesus inside the box that you have him in or I have him in is really not worthy of that. Jesus is bigger than the box. Jesus is better than what we've imagined him to be. This series is out of a New Testament book called the Book of Hebrews. In my opinion, the Book of Hebrews is written to a group of second-generation Jewish Christians. And these young Jewish Christians were thinking about reverting to Judaism and or wandering off into a religion called Gnosticism. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't do it. Jesus is better. Keep following Jesus. Last week, we looked at this idea, Jesus Speaks. Jesus is the one who tells us the truth. Jesus is the one who announces the good news of this gospel. 
Jesus is the one who reminds us that he is better than the angels and better than the prophets of the Old Testament, and he is better than the voices of today that would tell us there is no ultimate true truth about religious matters, about matters of faith. No, Jesus is our prophetic Savior, and he tells us what is true, and he tells us about the gospel. Jesus speaks. The title of today's message is Jesus Atones. Jesus atones. Jesus is the one who takes care of our guilt. He is our priestly Savior. In a world that wrestles with what to do, a world that is so full of sin, we struggle with what to do with our own sin. What can I do about it? How can I resolve it? And to those of us who are perhaps tempted to revert back to old ways of answering that question, the book of Hebrews says, focus on God the Son. He has done for you what nobody else can do. He is the solution to your guilt and your shame and your sin. Our text today is a very short part of a text. Hebrews chapter 1, the last half of verse 3. But so we can start to get a context for it. Let me read Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. It's such a short reading, I'll just have you remain seated as I read it. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 from the Uh, English Standard Version. Here's what the writer says. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. Let me ask you to keep that on the screen for a moment. That last part is the part we want to focus on. Let me read it again. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Could I ask you to read just that part out loud with me, please? I want you to remember it. Let's go. After making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, what in the world is the writer of Hebrews talking about right here? This is really strange language, isn't it, for those of us who are Americans in the 21st century. That is, unless you're Jewish. If you're Jewish and you know the scriptures, you know immediately this is a reference to the Mosaic law and the priesthood system and the way that sacrifices were made. And it's especially a reference to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Until 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, every day the priest of Israel would go to the temple and before that the tabernacle and they would make sacrifices of animals and grains for the sins of the people. But there was nothing like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On that day, the priest would take one animal and he would confess the sins of the nation, putting his hands on the head of that animal, and that animal would be sacrificed. He would do that with another animal, and that animal would be led way away into the wilderness, signifying when God forgives our sins, he sends them so far away they'll never come back again. And then the priest would take some of the blood of the animal that was sacrificed and he would take it into the innermost place of the temple or before that the tabernacle into what was called the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go there and he only went there on this one day of the year. And on that day he would take with him the blood of the sacrifice signifying this, our sin is so serious it should result in our death but God is so gracious he provides a substitute. 
And by the priest going into the Holy of Holies, into that place that represented the very presence of God, it represented this, that because of this sacrifice, we can go into the presence of God himself and come back out alive because we've received mercy and we've received grace. There were two key elements for Yom Kippur. One was this, an acceptable sacrifice, and secondly, an acceptable priest. And here in Hebrews 1-3, in words that are, mis- that are mysterious to us, but words that were crystal clear to the first people who heard and read this letter, it says this, Jesus is our perfect sacrifice, and Jesus is our perfect priest. Let's take a look at both of those ideas today and apply them to our hearts. First of all is this, this passage says that Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. Look again at what it says at verse 1, uh, verse 3 of chapter 1, after making purification for sins. Now, that's a very uh, short uh, word, isn't it? Just five words, just less than a third of a verse. But there's a lot that's implied there. Implied is this, that Jesus didn't simply illustrate the purification for sins. His actions didn't simply point back to the purification for sins or point ahead to the purification for sins. His actions were not just a sign or a symbol. No, this was reality. His actions made purification for sins. And it doesn't say here, his actions made possible the purification for sins. No, his actions, his death, made purification for sins. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, the best way to explain the book of Hebrews especially a short verse like this, is by reading other parts of the book of Hebrews. We interpret Scripture by Scripture. Let's let the writer of Hebrews tell us what he means. I want to read for you 10 verses from Hebrews chapter 10. It's sort of a long reading. Let me ask you not to space out like sometimes we do when we read Scripture here during the sermons. I know how it goes. We preachers start reading a passage and we stop listening because we think he's going to explain everything that he just said. I don't have to listen. Now, I want you to listen. I won't have time to explain everything in his hearing. It's it's really clear if you stop and think about it. I'll explain it as we go. Hebrews 10, this is what he says. The law, that is the Old Testament ceremonial law, is only a shadow of the good things that are to come, that is the things of Jesus. They were not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to God to worship. If it could, then they would have stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilt for their sins. But those sacrifices of the Old Testament are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ comes in the world, here Jesus uh, being attributed to an Old Testament prophet, when Christ comes in the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, speaking to God the Father, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, Jesus, then I said, here I am, as it is written about me in the scroll, I've come to, come to do your will, O God. And doesn't that make us think of Jesus' prayer in the garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but thy will be done. First, he said, The sacrifices and offerings, burn offerings and sin offerings you didn't desire, nor were you pleased with them, though the law required them to be made. But then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. And he sets aside the first, that is the Old Testament ceremonial law, 
to establish the second, that is Jesus' actual death. And by that will, by that covenant, we have been made holy. How? Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. His death truly delivers from sin. All the other sacrifices were just pictures of what Jesus was going to do for us. You know, I think today in our room here, I think there are three groups of people. One group of people would be the people for whom this is new news, but you are hearing it as wonderful news. You believe it. You are drawn to it. You want to be saved by it, or you are being saved by it, and you rejoice in it. There's a second group of people that I want to speak to at the end of the sermon. But there's a third group of people, and and they are these. And it's a very important group of people. It's people for whom all of this talk of the necessity of a sacrifice, the necessity of atonement, all of this sounds odd and weird and out of place and maybe even barbaric. You have questions bouncing around in your head, and I want to respectfully address those questions because they're very, very important and they're very legitimate. Let me refer to how one man has explained these things. Dr. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, has put it this way. I don't have it on the screen. Just listen as I read a little bit of what he said. He said, when speaking of forgiveness, Jesus uses the image of debts to describe the nature of our sin. When someone seriously wrongs you, there's an absolutely unavoidable sense that the wrongdoer owes you. Now, an illustration I've used for years is this. Let's say you go to lunch with some friends and you come out from lunch back to your automobile in the parking lot and you find out that somebody has keyed your car. Somebody has taken a key and just scraped it right down the side of your car and scratched your car all from one side, from the front of one side to the back. Now, immediately you have a sense that an injustice has been done to you. It's not just a financial inconvenience. Something wrong has happened. And what do you intuitively want to have happen to make it right? You want the perpetrator to pay for the repair. That's what goes on in our hearts. The illustration that Keller uses is this. Let's say, for example, a friend of mine breaks one of my lamps. And let's say the cost of that lamp is $50. Well, one way to deal with it is that my friend atones by paying me $50 or buying me a new lamp. That's how it's, in a sense, redeemed. But the other way, if I forgive him, well, if I forgive him, the $50 cost doesn't vanish. If I forgive him, I'm the one choosing to absorb the loss of $50, or I'm the one having to pay the $50 to replace the lamp. But the debt gets paid or absorbed one way or the other. That's a great picture. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself to Moses. And this is what he said to Moses. I'm the one who forgives sins, but I hold the guilty accountable. I do not let them be unpunished. Now, how can both be true? It wasn't until the coming of Jesus that we see in the cross that the cross reveals both the justice of God and the love of God. Because of that cross, God is both just and the justifier of those who would believe in him. And again, to quote Tim Keller, he says this, in the cross, we see justice and love. God was so just and desirous to judge sin that Jesus had to die. But he was so loving and desirous of our salvation 
that Jesus was willing and glad to die. There's the gospel. The apostle Paul said in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. It's a free gift to us because God has paid the price through the death of his son. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, and that word for means in the place of. The debt gets paid, and it gets paid by Jesus. God loves, I'm so glad he loves, the idea of substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus' death was that substitutionary sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that takes care of all of my sin and yours if you believe in him. Is it that God is barbaric and he loves the smell of blood? No, God is merciful and he loves the smell of substitution. He loves the smell of grace. And so he loves what he has established. My friends, every one of us in the room, we may try to deny it, we may try to make excuses, we may even lie about it, but we carry guilt. And some of us have been carrying that a long time. In the first few years of our marriage, Margaret Ann and I were at my parents' home visiting them, and we were looking through some very old photographs of my father's family. We found a very old photograph of my father and his two brothers, one an older brother whom I had met when I was a child, but there was also in this picture a younger brother, and I had never met my father's younger brother, and frankly, I'd never heard them talk about his younger brother. And so I said, I never hear you talk about your younger brother. I've never met him. What happened to him? My father stopped, and then he burst into tears. And he wept, a man in his 80s, a man who wept from his gut. And finally, he composed himself enough to say, Oh, how I have suffered for that. And he went on to tell me the story of a younger brother who became very rebellious and got in trouble with the law and his actions and his decisions led to a very early death. And my father felt that he could have done something to help his younger brother go in a different direction. And for over 50 years, my father had carried this weight of guilt. Let me ask you, what is the weight of guilt that you carry today? How long have you been carrying it? My friends, here is the good news. The blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin, even that sin. All of your sin, all of my sin. No sin too big, no sin too little. The sacrifice of Jesus is a perfect sacrifice. Oh, Lord, I ask you now, even though we're only part of the way through this message, Lord, bring your good news home to us. May we believe it with all of our hearts for the sins that we're thinking about right now. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Amen. My friends, this passage not only tells us that Jesus is a perfect sacrifice, this passage also tells us that Jesus is our perfect priest. Notice again what it says in verses, verse 3 right here. It says, after making purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, odd, weird language. What in the world is he talking about? Well, again, let's let the writer of Hebrews tell us what he means in this little phrase. Here's what Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12 says. 
says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never really take away sins. But when this priest, that is Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. The work of the Old Testament priest was a filthy work, it was an exhausting work, and it was a perpetual work. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, one generation after another, the priest stood, and again and again and again and again, they made sacrifices for the people. But when Jesus makes his sacrifice, what does he do? He sits down. <laughs> he sits down because of this. When he died, he called out, to Telestai, it is finished. And that was a phrase that also meant this, paid in full. Job completed. Not only a perfect sacrifice, but a perfect priest who gets the job completely done. Again, let's let Scripture speak to our hearts. Listen to these seven verses from Hebrews 7. Now, there have been many of those priests of the Old Testament since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our needs one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, he sacrificed their sins. He, he was sacrificed, or he rather, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath, that is the covenant of grace, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Now, the main point of what we're saying here is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. It is finished. My friends, do you see here? Jesus is the perfect priest. His blood cleanses from all sin. And he always, even today, he is standing now, or rather sitting now at the right hand of the Father, and he is pleading his blood for the sin that has been in your mind as I have preached this sermon. It is the blood of Jesus that he pleads, and he intercedes even today. What a merciful Savior. I can so identify with what our leader of worship here today, what Monty said earlier, that I have a hard time often believing that God loves me and that he is good. I have a hard time believing that he is merciful. My wife and my daughter and I went out the other night to see one of the movies that's currently in the theaters. I'm not going to tell you the name of the movie. I don't want to ruin it in case you go see it. But it's a movie about a man who is very, very harsh. And the movie is basically about how his family is afraid of him and the repercussions in his family's life, especially the life of his sons, of such harshness. You know, my bet is there are a lot of us in this room that grew up with a mother or father who was unbelievably harsh. Or perhaps you are growing up now with a mother father, or father who is bone-crushingly harsh. 
And if that's your home of origin, then this is what you ended up being taught. What you dare not do is confess your sins. What you do is hide your sins. Because if you confess your sins, you'll get wrath. You'll get judgment. You won't get mercy or grace. My friends, the good news of Jesus is this. When we confess and go to him, we go not to a throne of judgment. We go to a throne of grace. Here's the way the writer of Hebrews puts it in chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens into the holy of holies, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach the throne of what? The throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive what? Judgment and wrath? No. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here's a picture of the book of Hebrews. Jesus has been that great high priest who has gone into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God, and he has put us into his pocket, and he has taken us there as well so that we have access to the very presence of God. And when we get there, what do we find? Because he's been the perfect sacrifice and because he has been the perfect priest, what is it we find? We find mercy. We find grace. We find the solution to all of our sin and guilt and shame. That is the good news of the gospel. And that means we no longer have to hide behind the lies. We don't have to hide behind the excuses or live in denial. The gospel brings an honesty about our sin because we know of the grace of Jesus. That's our message today. That's what God's Word says. Now, I said earlier in the sermon that there are three groups of people I'm speaking to today. One is the group that this is new news to you and it's news that you believe and you embrace it. The second group are those people for whom this is odd and weird and strange. And I hope perhaps my words helped you put some pieces of the puzzle together. But the third group may be the largest group here. And that is the group of people for whom this good news really sounds like old and boring news. Let me ask you, is that you? As I've talked today about this good news, does it come across to you like old news and boring news? If that's the case, perhaps what you and I both need is this. How do we keep the message of the cross fresh and alive and vibrant every day of our lives? God led me through an experience long after I'd been a pastor. I began to learn more acutely more deeply about how to keep the message of the cross alive in my heart every day. I want to make four points out of a, a point of a passage of Scripture. They were going to build for you that you could see them on the back screen. You'll see them on the side screen. It's basically about having a full faith, a sincere faith, an ongoing faith, an interdependent faith. One other sort of long reading. Here are these six verses from Hebrews 10. Listen, listen intently. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, the key word, confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. And that's the question. How do we draw near to God every day? 
Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me help you as I've tried to help myself keep this alive in my heart every day. First of all, ask God to give you a full faith, a full faith. It says in Hebrews 10, 19 and 22, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let's draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance, a confident faith, a faith of full assurance. Somewhere along the way, even after being a pastor for many years, I realized I needed to understand the cross more deeply, and I needed to focus on it more intentionally. And so I began to try to do two things. One of the things was this. No matter what passage of Scripture or topic of Scripture I was studying or reading about, I would try to run to the cross with that topic. What is the connection between the cross of Jesus and what I'm reading right now? So the cross was there. And everything I studied, everything I read, everything I thought about, the second thing I began to do every day in my time of worship alone with God was to utilize hymns and poems about the cross of Jesus and the death of Jesus. And I never let it leave me. And there are days in which I will sing about the cross until the music of the gospel makes my heart come alive and I rejoice. Ask God to give you a full confident faith. Secondly, ask God to give you a sincere faith, a sincere heart says in Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Don't just go through the motions, my friend. Let yourself look intently at the depths of your sin until you see the evil of it. And how can you risk doing that? Because the depths of the cross are deeper still. When you believe that the depths of the cross are deeper than your sin, you don't have to play games. You can look honestly at how awful your sin is because the beauty of the cross is greater than the ugliness of your sin. Thirdly, ask God to give you an ongoing faith, unswerving, constant, consistent. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who has promised is faithful. There were many years in my life, frankly, that I thought the message of the cross was one and done. I believed in it when I accepted Jesus. Now I'm just sort of trying to obey the commands through the power of the Holy Spirit, and I don't need the cross anymore. No, no. Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, said that all of the Christian life is to be a life of repentance, all of it. Repentance is an ongoing way of life. An opportunity a number of years ago to talk with a, a tremendously fruitful, effective Christian leader, and I asked him the secret of his great energy for the gospel and for his ministry, and he thought for a moment, And he said, the answer is lots of repentance. It's not the answer I expected. Lots of repentance. And I found that the closer I get to Jesus, the more often I repent. But the sweeter that repentance is. Ongoing faith, repentant, humble faith. And lastly, there's an interdependent faith. So a full faith. Not only a full faith, but a sincere faith, ongoing faith. And lastly, an interdependent, a communal faith a corporate faith. We don't follow Jesus alone. We need each other. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 puts it this way. Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, 
but let's encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For years I quoted that verse, and I never even knew the context. But I think the context is he's saying a lot of what James says in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. AA says we're only as sick as our secrets. God has a better plan. Life together means confessing sin together. Life together means rejoicing in our forgiveness together. It's why we need the church. It's why we need small groups, discipleship groups. It's why we need a leader, a discipleship leader and a mentor. God does not want us to live alone in our guilt. And God does not want us to live alone in the joy of our forgiveness. Share it with other people. If you're like me and you've heard this stuff all your life, I hope those things are a little helpful. They will be helpful if you can put them into practice. One final analogy and then we close. If you were an adult or even if you were a teenager in 1999, perhaps you remember the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. For those of us who are history buffs or those of us who are baby boomers or older, we will always think of John Kennedy Jr. as John John. And we'll always bring back memories of that brave little boy saluting his father's casket on his third birthday at JFK's funeral. April 16, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. and his wife and his sister-in-law took off from a small airport in New Jersey, headed toward Martha's Vineyard for the wedding of John Kennedy Jr.'s cousin. They never made it. Instead, as dusk turned into darkness on an overcast day, he flew his plane straight into the ground. Aviation experts said that most likely what happened was he suffered from spatial disorientation. That happens often for a pilot who's flying only by sight and doesn't have an adequate instrument panel. It can happen when it's overcast or it's foggy or at night. And simply the pilot gets disoriented and he can't tell up from down. He can't tell left from right. And what's needed in those cases is something on the instrument panel called an attitude indicator. Or maybe a better word or a better description is the artificial horizon. And for a pilot who's disoriented, he has to look at that artificial horizon. It looks like the wings of an airplane. And if he is flying straight and level, the wings of that airplane will look like indeed they are on the horizon of the earth, of that ball that will rotate to show him up from down. And for a pilot who is disoriented, it is vital, vital that he stay focused on the attitude indicator. He dare not trust the way he feels. He dare not trust his senses to tell him up from down. He must fix his eyes on the life-giving attitude indicator. My friends, for us, the cross of Jesus Christ is that life-giving attitude indicator. There will be times that we will think, my sin is so little, my sin is so small, I don't have to take that to the cross. No, there's no sin too small. Every sin needs to be dealt with because Jesus died for every sin. And there'll be other times that we will think, that sin, that sin is too big. I have confessed that sin too many times. I have committed that sin too many times. God will not forgive me of that one. No, my friends, no. There is no sin too big. No sin repeated too often. The blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. And so again and again and again, go to your perfect priest 
as he pleads his perfect sacrifice for you, for that sin, and again and again, experience the grace of God. Jesus speaks. Jesus atones. He does for us what no one else can do. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are this kind of wonderful, powerful, gracious God. Thank you that you have left no sin unanswered. No small sin, no great sin. No repeated sin, no one-time sin. But Lord, your grace is bigger than them all. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the perfect priest. And you gave yourself as the perfect sacrifice. May we believe in this with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.